Thanks, Ben. Welcome once again to Karis. Um, Jonathan Goebel's been a deacon a couple other times before, so, um, you know, he's used to this, but we're, we are thankful for him and his family. If, if they weren't Arkansas grads, you know, they'd be perfect, but, you know, we can't all be perfect. Well, it's so important to have the right expectations, right? As many of you know, two of the guys in our office just became dads for the first time in the last couple of months. I remember at least one time um, Aaron coming into the office, clearly exhausted, and saying something along the lines of, wow, I didn't expect this. Dude, yeah, I tried to warn you, right? It wasn't going to be easy. I'll never forget um, my now 20-year-old, then a newborn, in a bassinet right beside our bed, screaming in my ear during, I think, the first night that he was home. I remember turning to Amy, about to lose my mind, and shouting out, you have got to do something about this. Lest you thought your elders were perfect. Um, Right expectations are so important. Right? Well, here in Matthew, Jesus has just called these 12, his disciples. He's getting them ready for gospel ministry. And they're probably thinking, um, having watched Jesus from a distance, I can't believe that we get to do this. This is, this is so exciting. We get to be on tour. We get to be on the road with Jesus. This is going to be great. But they have no idea what's coming. And we see Jesus here breaking the news to them. Soon, they're going to be doing some screaming themselves. Think about what we've seen in this book already. Jesus has been going about working miracles, showing his authority, demonstrating with so much power that his kingdom has come, and the disciples are thinking that they get to step right into that. They've got to be really excited, but wait, there's more. Maybe you're one of the millions in America that have watched the the Netflix series Quarterback that features Patrick Mahomes and Marcus Mariota and Kirk Cousins. We already knew Pat was awesome, but this has introduced so many people to how great Kirk Cousins is, right? We've got to see his faith, to see it lived out on camera. It's just been great, but they they talk about in the show this turning point in his career when he leads his team at the time, Washington, to this epic, I think, record-breaking victory And he runs off the field, he runs into the tunnel, he yells out these words to those around, you like that. So if if you've watched any football or or ESPN at all, you've you've surely seen that that moment on the screen. But in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus is casting out demons, he's healing the sick, he's raising the dead, he's commanding the wind and the waves, he's making the blind see, and the disciples witness it all, and they like that, yeah. But what Christ's about to share here, beginning in verse 16, they're not going to like so much, right? We're going to see as we go through this book that they can't seem to grasp that, they're gonna, that Jesus is going to die, but the thought that they might have to die, no, no thanks. We didn't sign up for that, but Jesus is going to guide them toward having right expectations. Yes, it would be the best of times but the worst of times too. So let's jump into these verses, think about what they could say to us today. I'm gonna gonna start out by zooming in, and then we'll talk about what I think the big points are that Jesus is making, then we'll talk about how this could apply, and then 
lastly, I'll zoom in on a couple of, of confusing verses that may have jumped out to you. First, first, if we want to follow him on mission, troubles will find us. If we want to follow him on mission, troubles are coming our way. Jesus says right off the bat, verse 16, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Sheep in the midst of wolves. So you probably heard the talk over the last several years that we shouldn't be sheep. You know, it's, it's become this almost call to arms, this cry to, to fight back. But isn't this exactly what Jesus calls us? He's the good shepherd. He sends us out in the world on a mission. And what does he call us? Well, he calls us sheep. Now, much has been said, you've probably heard this before, about sheep not being the smartest animals on the farm, but it doesn't seem like that's the emphasis here. It seems like it's not our intellect, but it's more about our our vulnerability, right? He's sending us out into danger. Fierce wolves are going to come after us. It reminds me of Paul's words in, to the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20, 29. Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Of course, not literal wolves. We're not literal sheep, right? Jesus says in verse 17, beware of men. Yeah, of course. Often, you know, usually in the Bible when it talks about men, that's a, a, a plural that includes women as well. But bad people are going to try to take us out Our persecution is promised. That's what Jesus says. Matthew here is writing, it seems, mainly to Jewish believers. And the Lord makes it clear here in verse 17 that their fellow Israelites are going to come at them. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. But that's not all it says. Verse 18, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So non-Jews, Gentiles would also cause them to suffer, Jesus is saying. And in both groups, leaders are involved. The heads of the synagogues among the Jewish people, the Roman kings and governors, they're coming to devour them. That's Jesus' warning here. Now, this is literally what we see unfold in the book of Acts, right? As the church goes out, they do what Jesus asks. This also would have resonated with the readers in Matthew's day as they're beginning to be looked upon with suspicion by people in the synagogue. This is starting to slowly play out among them before their eyes. Now, skipping over a a couple of verses that we'll get back to in a few, The pain is also going to hit close to home. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. We're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come, but allegiance to Jesus is going to trump allegiance to mom and dad and sister and brother. It's going to divide families. Even our closest relatives will betray us. Jesus says, maybe even kill us. Jesus takes it further, and he kind of ties it all together. Verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. This isn't every single person. This is all kinds of people, right? Not all without exception, all without distinction. We will get omnidirectional hate if we're followers of Jesus, 
Not just the disciples Jesus is talking to, but all disciples at all times, including us. Christ says that wolves will come at us from what seems like everywhere. This is what Jesus wants us to expect. He gives us this warning, this encouragement there in verse 22. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. I say it's a warning. Only those who endure will be saved. We've got to hang on. But it's also an encouragement. We will be saved in his strength. He will rescue us. But he still says we have to patiently endure. This is the first thing that Jesus promises. It's probably not our favorite promise in the Bible, right? But this is what he says is coming to them, to us. This is meant to be our normal as his people. Being sheep pursued by wolves, enduring persecution. Paul puts it later in to his disciple Timothy when he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But the Lord goes on to explain why this is the case. Listen to verses 24 and 25 again. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Speaking of the quarterback again, for the past several years, there's just been this thing in our family where the Chiefs have fallen behind in a game. I turn to the kids and I yell out loud, don't forget, we've got Pat, and they don't, right? With number 15 wearing the, the red jersey, we can pretty much count on a comeback. That's pretty much been the case. With Jesus as our leader, we're gonna win out in the end, but right now, before his final return, we're assured that we'll suffer with him. Where he goes, we'll go. Our fate is tied up in him. Our direction is tied up in him. He's our teacher. We're his disciples, it says. He's our master. We're his servants. If it happens to him, it's going to happen to us, or we can be sure we're not really following his path. We're not obeying. We have to question whether his people, we're his people at all. The point of a servant, the point of a disciple is to what? Jesus reminds us, verse 25, to learn our leader's ways, to look and act like him, that's the point. And with Jesus, it means we'll undergo trials. He makes a strange statement here also to close the section out. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Beelzebul, that, that's a word that literally means head, master of the house. But there's a certain house that these critics have in mind as they talk to Jesus. There's more of this that we'll see again as we move ahead in the book, but they're calling Jesus Satan here, guys. Yes, the one who heads up the household of God, they're saying that he's in charge of the house of hell. And Jesus is saying, hey, if they're gonna say this about me, if they're calling me the devil, you better be sure that they're gonna say this about you too. Back in the Beatitudes, in chapter five, verse 11, Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
will suffer, it says, on account of him, because of our identification with him. Our troubles for Christ will show that we belong to him. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 4.14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If we follow him on mission, troubles will find us. That's the first thing to see here. His ministry had struggles, and so will ours. Here's the second thing, though. In the midst of trials, he won't leave us hanging. Isn't that what he says? Look at verses 19 to 20 again. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your Father speaking through you. In the midst of our trials, at the hour of our deepest need, he'll come through for us. That's what Jesus says to them. That's what he says to us. He encourages us, do not be anxious. Don't fear, specifically, don't worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say. Why is that? Well, our words will be given to us. How does it say by the Spirit of God? He'll bring words to mind. He'll speak through us. That's the promise here. That's how we'll ultimately endure. He wouldn't leave them hanging, and he won't abandon us either. That's Jesus' promise here again to his sheep. He doesn't say, stand up for yourself, fight the powers that be. He says, no, you'll be persecuted, but I'll rescue you. I'll speak through you. That's a far cry again from so much of what we hear today. Now, this is what we see happening in the life of the early church as we see Jesus' disciples testify with boldness, but this is our promise as well. It doesn't mean we shouldn't prepare for those times, that we shouldn't know our Bibles really well, that we shouldn't have words ready to flow off our lips, but in the darkest of trials, when we won't know what to say and we, don't, we won't know if we can stand, it won't be all up to us. We don't have to worry. He'll give us the words. His presence is promised. Maybe you can relate, but I've been in hard ministry situation. I've faced some hard conversations and I've prayed and I've been met with God's help. I've felt the Spirit's presence during those times. How much more will the Spirit of God show up and show out in times of really intense pain? Persecution is promised here, but his presence is too, and that should be such a comfort to us. Here's the problem that I just want to say out loud. It's awkward. I'm a pretty awkward guy if you know me, but don't these, don't these verses just feel... Uh, miles away. Don't they feel foreign? foreign? Don't they feel outside of our experience in the U.S. of A.? I want you to picture something with me. Uh, we're together in a park. Um, with, we're with all of our Christian friends. We're relaxing, having fun. We're tossing around a football. Um, we're grilling some burgers. And we look over and we see this cave over under some shady trees. We hadn't noticed it before. We tiptoe over there. We, we, we gaze inside. It, it looks dark and scary. feels kind of cold. Uh, 
looks like some sort of, of tunnel. But we hear Jesus calling us in there. There's this sense from the spirit we're supposed to enter, but there's all these unknowns. What could be on the other side? What's in there? But we do have these promises from God that, that things could get hard, but he's gonna protect us. He says, I'll be with you. We're standing there. We look back at the park with longing at what we see. You know, things feel in, under control over there. We like having the power, the privilege. We like being in charge, having the say. It, it just feels comfortable. It feels manageable. You know, we stand there and, and you know, we don't want these, we don't want to say that these verses don't apply to us. So we actually exaggerate the suffering that we experience over there, right? Persecution is what Starbucks, you know, does or doesn't put on their cups or what Target does or doesn't hang on its racks. We, we have this nagging feeling that our comfort and ease, our unwillingness to go says something about us, but we, we try to push it back. We try to stuff it away. You know, we're not disobedient. We're not compromised. Look at how we serve our church. Look at the charities we support. So we flee back to the picnic tables. We resume the conversations and we avoid what Jesus calls us to do. But what if there's something breathtaking, something amazing that's waiting for us on the other side? Yeah, suffering, but what about blessing? Maybe something that looks like the book of Acts where there's people getting in trouble but they're praying big prayers where they're seeing God show up, they're watching their boldness increase, they're growing in their faith, people are coming to know Jesus. Maybe that could be on the other side. A renewed church prayerfully, boldly making disciples on the other side of that passageway. But we're tempted to stay here in an American church that's frankly pretty lukewarm and not doing much at all and it's really, by all intents and purposes, given up on the mission Jesus has given us. Now, if you didn't know this, the, the days of a, quote, Christian nation, unquote, if that really, really was even the case, gone a long time ago. We're, we're, we're going the way of Europe to a, a post-Christian society. We can follow Jesus on this mission or we can hang out in comfort and ease, raging at the world around us. We can, we can reminisce at the way things used to be or we can follow Jesus down that passageway. We can be a prophetic minority proclaiming his good news, living it out, seeing him show up in our pain. That's what God's people have always done. That's who they've always been. I've really enjoyed this book by an author, John Stark, The Secret Place of Thunder. It's on the book table now. Highly recommend it. But he, he talks about how in hard times, how we tend toward two different directions. One is despondency, where we just sink into our depression and despair and just sit and stay there. The other is nostalgia, where we long for the way things used to be. We do everything we can to recreate it, to go back there. Stark says in these moments where God seems quiet and things seem hard, he says those are when 
we need to do as, as Psalm 46 says and be still and know that he's God and wait for him to act and to call out to him, to watch him show up, to watch him rescue his people and glorify his name. Family, could this be what God is calling us to here? But the answer is going to be found on the path of pain, but also the one of joy. So staying in that place that's safe, that's comfortable, we have to realize we also miss out on his blessing. We miss out on his power. This past week, I was talking to our brother Binga, playing the drums up here a little bit ago. Maybe you've heard about the terrorist group in his homeland, Nigeria, called Boko Haram. They, they kidnap children, they shoot them up, they burn down churches. Benga remembers as a kid living in serious fear when believers' cars and homes were being burned. Christians were being actively sought and killed. He remembers a pastor family he knew having to hide from this mob coming to kill them. He remembers his mom almost being overtaken by an angry unruly mob, and he talks about Boko Haram taking the city under siege, having to hide for multiple days in his home, bombs are going off in the city. That was his childhood. Fear because they were Christians, and that's still what believers are facing there today. Again, where we're at in America, what we experience here. That isn't the experience of the church throughout history. It's not the experience of the church for so many in the world today. Persecution is real, and the spirit is at work. And again, you know, they say the, the seed of the, the church is the, the blood of the martyrs. You know, that's, that's been so often how God has worked and brought revival. The place in the park again, comfort, ease, it's a mirage, it's passing away, and it is the way that leads to death. Will we follow Jesus where he leads because that is where life is found? Church, we have to embrace and endure persecution and pain, trusting in his presence and power. But I wanna ask, what will have to change for this to be something that seems a little more near? I think it's pretty simple that we just need to be, to live as the missionaries that Jesus calls us to be here. Me, everyone here. In verse 18, Christ talks about his disciples bearing witness before Gentiles and Jews, testifying to what he's done. That's what we do when Persecution comes near, but it's also what causes the suffering in the first place. And I think as we go through Matthew, as we go through the Bible, it really comes down to basically two things, speaking the truth and walking in love. Think with me about the world of this passage. Matthew, the book of Acts. Who was king? Caesar, right? He was the emperor. He was the one that was called Lord. You know, it was... It was his face that was on the coins, right? His empire was expanding across the globe. People were taking that message far and wide, more than often by force. You could believe any God you wanted to there. 
No problems there, but if you said there was just one way, that someone else was Lord, that you had to bow down with him, now that was a problem. That, that world isn't as far away as maybe it seems. What does Christ ask us to do? To go proclaim, to go announce, to herald, to gospel that he is the king, that we have to submit our lives to him, that we can't just define ourselves any way we want. We have to be under his kingship. We have to go and proclaim that he's the only king, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. Him and him alone. No other gods, no other presidents. We're his. We go and proclaim his coming kingdom where he'll return and judge. He'll make everything new. He'll vindicate his children. He'll judge all rebels. And the only way to flee that wrath that's to come is to run to his cross. This is what we proclaim. We speak truth. And that's not easy. It wasn't easy then. It's not easy now. But we also walk in love, right? As we see Jesus here in the Gospels, he goes around listening and healing, holding babies, welcoming the outcasts. He tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. We see him go and meet needs. He serves in word and deed. We care about souls and bodies. We welcome people into our homes. We eat meals with those that others neglect. We don't just proclaim truth, we live in love. And as we do that, we break stereotypes. We confuse many we, we come to know that, that can't fit that equation in their heads. We say hard words, but we do kind deeds. And as a result, the spirit works, many are drawn to us, but also many get mad as we bear witness. The early church, they got wrath from all sides from Gentiles and Jews, from relativists and legalists. If we seek faithfully to live out God's word in our city, in our world, we're gonna get anger from all directions as well, just as Jesus predicts here. If on one hand, we did all we could to care for children, for the unborn, for orphans, on the other, We stood against racism and called out evils across our land. If on one hand, we modeled God's vision for sex, we held out his design for marriage, and on the other side, we welcomed immigrants and refugees, we'd get grief from both sides. We'd need the spirit of God for sure. And this is the way the early church lived, and they were turning the world upside down. I'll get to that graphic in a second. Now, I, I love the ampersand, okay? I've, I, you probably heard me say that before. I've always told my kids, most things are both and. I hate being backed into a corner. I, I hate, you know, trying to deny tension that exists. I've been reading through this, recently through this really great book by this guy named Chris Watkins, and he has a better way to put it. And he urges us what he calls diagonalization. Diagonalization, big word. I think he made up that word. Um, But what he's saying, you don't just have race over here and the unborn over here and just say that we're a people that cares about both. No, he's saying we have a way of looking at the world that cuts through both of them on the diagonal. 
a faith that takes everything upward, that goes deeper and higher. We have a view that values life because we're made in God's image. Yeah, from the womb to the tomb, but also in all its diversity, from every tribe and tongue and nation. So the gospel gives us something that transcends both perspectives. It's greater than both and. It's glorious. But it's also something that ends up making people on both sides pretty mad. Now, today, we're more likely in America to make people upset as they look at the way that we act, I'm afraid to say. Pastor Dave Adamson put it this way. If the world hates you because of Jesus, that's expected. If the world hates Jesus because of you, that's a problem. Other times we end up offending people because we're bowing down to another king, to money, to sex, to power, to a political party, and then not acting like Jesus, but talking about Jesus. But if we're honest, so much of the time, we're just living in fear. I am. We're not hated at all because we're too much controlled by the approval of others and we don't share or live out what Jesus teaches here at all. So I say, let's abide in Jesus. Let's draw near to him. Let's look increasingly more and more like him and that will carry us away from this place of comfort and ease but toward this place of life and blessing. But if we're following Jesus, things are not gonna be easy. I love the way Platt puts it, David Platt. Everyone who wants a safe, carefree life, free from danger, should stay away from Jesus. The world responds with hostility to him, so we are conformed to Christ more and more. The world will respond to us more and more as they responded to him. If you want to avoid being betrayed, hated, or persecuted, then don't become like Christ. We are so prone to sit back and settle for religious routine and comfortable Christianity because it's safe. And the world likes us in that mode. As long as we live lives just like everyone else, going to church on Sunday and keeping our faith to ourselves, we will face little risk in this world. The only problem is that we will know so little of Christ. But when we do know Christ and when we're becoming like him and proclaiming him, things will not be easy for us. The more Christ is manifest in your life and in your family, the harder it will get for you in this world. So church, let's do what he asks. Let's believe him as we go. Let's embrace and endure persecution and pain, trusting in his presence and power. Okay, so there's a couple of sentences there, and I could do a sermon on both of these, but I'm sure they stood out to you. They, they did to me. And they're confusing, but I think they help us get to a mindset as we go together on mission for him in our world. So first, there's that line in verse 16 where Christ tells us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wise as serpents and innocent as doves. What does that mean? Well, I think it says as we go, we have to be thoughtful, so one book that I love that I recently re- reread is called The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. You ought to read it if you haven't. But back in World War II in Holland, Corey and her family end up helping and harboring Jewish people who are fleeing from the Nazis. But there's this interesting dynamic between 
Corey and her sister Betsy that goes throughout the book. Well, or Corey, who she's the author, she'll stretch the truth, whatever it takes to, to do whatever she needs to, to keep people safe, but Betsy's conscience just can't do that, right? She's always gonna tell the truth, no matter what. She almost gets them in huge trouble. She just says, we trust God to work it out. She would have given away the secret place, you know, if, if they would have asked her. That's where Betsy was at. I think those two women, Corey and Betsy, together give us this picture of this tension that we have to live in here. Serpents on one hand. Of course, that harkens back to Genesis 3, Satan in the garden, when the fall into sin took place, right? Without the righteousness of Jesus, wisdom, thoughtfulness, it becomes cunning, it becomes crafty, it ends up becoming deceit. Doves, on the other hand, in the Bible, in Hosea specifically, they're referred to as being silly, without sense, naive, that kind of thing. Without the wisdom of Jesus, that kind of innocence becomes naivete. And so as we walk around in the world with wolves all around, we have to, on one hand, be perceptive. We have to be discerning. But on the other, we have to have integrity. We have to show vulnerability. We just have to be thoughtful. Again, I wish I had another 30 minutes to talk about this. But second, there's that statement in verse 23. As we go, we need to be hopeful. We need to be hopeful. Verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Okay, we're not called to actively go around and try to find persecution. Now, that's not what Jesus is saying here. And he even says here, if we encounter it, it's okay to hide. We're, we're encouraged here to flee. But what about the end of the statement? Before the Son of Man comes, was Jesus wrong? Should we doubt God's word? That's the way a lot of people read this. Well, Jesus said they would be out doing ministry, and he'd come, and clearly that hasn't happened, so, you know, you and your Bibles, bless your heart, right? There's just more to it than that. You know, some people have said that this refers to Jesus coming back resurrected from the dead, interrupting what they're doing there. Oh, it's me again. Oh, hi, Jesus. Some have said that. Others have pointed to God judging the Jewish people in 70 AD. I don't know if you know about that. 70 AD, God judged um, his people using the Romans, and the temple was destroyed, the, the city was messed up, and those who weren't killed, they fled, right? I actually lean to that, toward that view, to that fall of Jerusalem back in that day. That verse came true. The Christians were there. They were busy sharing the gospel all across Jerusalem. God came in judgment, and they had to flee the Holy Land. Like, now, that verse, like so many that we see in the, the, the New Testament, it, ha it fits that historical situation, but it, it points ahead. It reaches ahead to something bigger and greater. And it points ahead to our day, the one that's yet to come, the one that gives us a lot of hope. One day, if we're here, but, but our you know, heirs, um, one day our ministry will be interrupted 
by the coming of Jesus. We're not going to get to all the places we want to go, and he'll come back riding on the clouds. Our suffering will come to an end with the coming of Jesus. He'll set up his kingdom fully, finally, once for all. So as you and I do ministry and as we endure persecution, we should be hopeful people. He's coming. He's going to save us. He's going to vindicate us. So thoughtful and hopeful. That's this mindset we need as we're his missionaries. So as I wrap up, church, what if we read the Gospels along with Acts and we actually believed it and acted like it? What would happen? We would find pain, I'm pretty convinced, but his presence as he promises. Christ's words here, Matthew 10, they would come to life, right? When I finished up seminary, graduate school for ministry, my wife uh, realized that um, her expectations were a little off. I started talking about this thing called church planting and she got pretty nervous. So she had this vision in her head of me taking this job at this cute white church out in the country, um, you know, with the white picket fence. You know, you've, you've driven by those. And then everything um, playing out kind of like a little house in the prairie book, right? Um, well, heading into an established church like that, you know, it has its whole list of challenges, but, but church planning is kind of a, a whole different animal. Let me be clear, I had no idea what I was getting into either, but as I tell people all the time, it's been the hardest thing, but it's been the greatest thing as well. What are your expectations for Christian ministry, for what it means to serve Jesus in the world? Think about what Jesus says here again. Do you like that, or do you want something else? In the coming weeks, as we keep rolling through Matthew, Jesus is going to keep telling us what it will all cost. We'll hear these words in chapter 10, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's all worth it, Karis. We can't forget that. Not only do we expect trials, We expect him to meet us in the midst of them. We look ahead to a new heavens and a new earth where all of this pain will cease forever. He promises that we'll experience life. This fall in Karis, in our MCs, we're gonna be talking about making disciples, about sharing our faith, about seeing people come to know Jesus. Let's commit to devoting ourselves to doing that no matter the cost. And as we do, let's pray that God would renew us, that he would fill us with zeal to go out for him, that he'd give us boldness as we encounter abuse. Let's embrace and endure persecution and pain, trusting in his presence and power. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, strengthen us for what you call us to do. Lord, um, shake us out of our, our comfort. Um, our apathy, and let us hear these words. Um, It's just a challenge, but also just as a a way to pursue um, real life and true joy. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.
Well, the reality, of course, is we don't live up to these words very well, and Jesus knows that. And um, he not only will work in us and through us, but he rescues us, he forgives us, he saves us. And every week in Karis, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We have this family meal where we remember and rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. Where we remember his body broken for us so that we could be forgiven. We remember his blood poured out for us so that we could be made whole. We rejoice in the cross. We wait for the day when he'll return and 